Well, thank you, worship ministry, for leading us in worship today. And so, 2023 has begun for us. Obviously, last Sunday, we gathered for worship, and I just briefly introduced our theme for 2023. And let me just remind you this morning, as we begin this conversation that will take us through an entire year, our theme is, Why Does It Matter? And as we have come through the pandemic, that has been... I believe a a topic that has been considered by many people because in the midst of the pandemic, many times we ask the question, what really matters in life? How should we be spending our time and our efforts? Because it seems like all that was on the periphery kind of fell away and all that really mattered is what remained. And so kind of in light of that, I want us to embark on this year-long conversation. Why does it matter? So here are our topics. Let me give them to you uh, for 2023. We start here in the winter. And the question we're asking in the winter is, why does anything matter? And then with Easter season, why does your story matter? And for the spring, why does the family matter? And then why does eternal life matter for the summer? In August, why does the Holy Spirit matter? In the fall, why does the church matter? In November, why does mission matter? And next Advent season, why does the incarnation matter? But I want us to begin with this question for these next few weeks during the winter season. Why does anything matter? What is really meaningful in life and who decides what's meaningful? What really is significant and how do you know if it's significant? Why does anything matter? Well, we're going to engage in a journey together this year around a conversation that deals with apologetics. Now, that word apologetics, it's actually connected to what the Scripture teaches us. You know, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, the, the apostle Peter says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. He says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to the reason for the hope you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. And so our word apologetics actually comes, Paul Chamberlain and Chris Price have written a book called Everyday Apologetics. Let me give you their explanation of that word. Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia. Now the word apologia is what's in 1 Peter 3.15. Be ready to give an answer or a defense. That's the word apologia. Doing apologetics is speaking in defense of the faith. Are providing reasons for belief. It involves untangling the many misconceptions that people lug around due to their upbringing or the various cultural sound bites they've consciously absorbed into their religious point of view. Apologetics serves to clear away the intellectual rubble strewn about by our cultural moment and the entrenched assumptions of our day, providing the message of Jesus with a fairer hearing in the marketplace of ideas. What a great introduction to apologetics. And so let me just ask you as we begin this year together, how capable do you feel like you are if you were called upon to defend Christianity? If if it were up to you to speak into this moment in our culture How prepared are you for that? How how well do you think you would do? Because you think about the moment we're in. 
Think about how Christianity is viewed across the broader culture. I mean, people look at us and say, well, well, why are you a Christian now? Why, why, why would you believe in Christianity now? I mean, after all, Christians are just angry people. I've met a few of them. Christians are, they're backwards people. They're, they're against everything. They don't want there to be any progress in society. They're always on the wrong side of history. They're never with it. They're always against it. And they seem to be frustrated all the time. And actually, they're not very intellectual. So, what do we say to that? What, what's our answer? Why would you be a Christian now? Well, how prepared are you for that moment? It's, it's funny to me the things that people believe about Christianity. You know that Christians actually invented universities, right? I mean, you know that, right? If you studied any history, you know, the Greeks had schools, but the schools were just to impart their own philosophy. Christians in the 1200s invented institutions of higher learning. We're the ones that said, you actually need to read all this and study and begin exploring truth. You shouldn't be afraid of That's a whole other, we'll get to all that later, okay? But I'm just saying, if you don't know your history, I'm sorry. But let me, let me put it to you this way. Josh Chatrow and Mark Allen have written a book called Apologetics at the Cross. Here's what they say about apologetics. They say, apologetics in its most basic form is the practice of offering an appeal and a defense for the Christian faith. So that's the best succinct statement I've read about apologetics. Now, apologetics is not just arguing, okay? Because arguing, it has its place, and, and sometimes we have to do it. But let me just remind you, arguing is, is fraught. Um, Mark Twain said, never argue with ignorant people. They will drag you down to their level and then beat you with experience. <laughs> he also said, never argue with a fool. Onlookers may not be able to tell the difference. <clears throat> Lyndon Johnson said, if two men agree on everything, only one of them is doing the thinking. Albert Hubbard said, if you can't answer a man's argument, all is not lost. You can still call him vile names. Um, Napoleon had a whole different view. Napoleon said, you don't reason with intellectuals, you shoot them. <clears throat> well, that's one way. Um, Albert, uh, uh, I mean, uh, Balthazar Gratian says, don't take the wrong side of an argument just because your opponent has taken the right side. Um, and then Marshall McLuhan says, many a good argument is ruined by some fool who knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and then Charles de Gaulle one of my favorite quotes, Charles de Gaulle says, when I'm right, I get angry. When Churchill is wrong, he gets angry. We are angry at each other much of the time. <clears throat> but here's the thing about arguing. You know, when we think about apologetics, we kind of may have that idea in our mind that this means as Christians, we're supposed to argue our, argue our way to the truth. That, that's not really it. It's, it's different than that. It has a different tenor. Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect, with, with reverence. But revere Christ in your hearts. Here's what I want to encourage me and you in as we start this year together. Morgan Housel's a business consultant. And here's what Housel says. Arguments seldom win the day. 
stories win the day. Now that's fascinating, isn't it? He says arguments rarely win the day. It's stories that win the day. He points out, he's written this, this book called Best Story Wins. And so he says, for example, let me give you a quote. He says, the Civil War is probably the most well-documented period in American history. There are thousands of books analyzing every conceivable angle, chronicling every possible detail. But in 1990, Ken Burns' Civil War documentary became an instant phenomenon with 39 million viewers. It won 40 major film awards. As many Americans watched Ken Burns' Civil War in 1990 as they watched the Super Bowl that year. And all he did, not to minimize it because it's a feat, is take 130-year-old existing information and wove it into a very good story. Stories win the day. Well, guess what that does for me and you? That gives us a distinct advantage because we have the greatest story that's ever been told. Amen. And so let me just ask you as we begin 2023, how well do you know the story and how well can you articulate it? Well, that's what this year is going to be about. Our approach to apologetics is going to have a narrative feel to it, okay, as we make our way through this year. So with all that said, let's get our Bibles out, and let's just start on page one. How about that? Let's just, let's just go to page one of our Bibles, Genesis 1, okay? <clears throat> and I've entitled the message today in the beginning, it's not original to me. <clears throat> I borrowed it. <clears throat> so did John. He borrowed it. But look with me at Genesis 1. The first part of the two pages we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, okay? But let's just look at Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, skip down to the end of that page, verse 31. And God, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he rested, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. What a powerful opening to our Bibles. Now, let's just walk through an introduction to how this is going to go for us this year with regard to apologetics. And I would like to just, if I may, offer us this morning just a quick, brief historical overview that I know all of you already know. But I still think it's important to start here. So let me just remind us all today that the Judeo-Christian view of God and reality is in stark contrast to all other ancient views period. If you've ever studied ancient history, now y'all know my PhD is in history. My PhD is in Christian history, but I have a, a, a regard for all of history, and it's important 
You need to read history. Y'all need to study history. It's a really good thing to do to understand what's happened. I don't need to give y'all that lecture though, right? A historian is going to say study history. But if you study ancient history, it's fascinating. Do you know that almost all literate ancient people have a creation story? Now, sometimes that makes modern Christians nervous. They say, now, wait a minute. The Jews must have borrowed some of these ideas from all these other ancient peoples because other ancient peoples have creation stories. Well, that shouldn't surprise you at all because human beings want to know how did all this start? Where does it all come from? Who began it? What frames our understanding of reality? All ancient peoples did that. So we have documents from ancient sources where we have read and studied what ancient people thought about God and about reality. And here's what I'll make sure we all know. The Judeo-Christian view is in stark contrast to all of them. It's not even close. So for example, if you've read the Babylonian take on the history of the world, it's called the Enuma Elish. According to the Babylonian view of the world and creation, Marduk wins the battle of the gods and he decides that he wants there to be people populating this planet. And so there's this sacrifice of one of the lesser gods and through that sacrifice, human beings emerge and they're all slaves of the gods and they're supposed to live in fear of all the gods. Another very famous account of creation is called the Epic of Atrahasis. 1,200 lines and many times it's compared to Genesis. But it tells the story of Geshu-E, this God who sacrifices other gods. And out of the sacrifice and death and the chaos of the war between the gods, human beings emerge. And they're to be slaves of all the gods. And they're to live in fear of all the gods for all their lives. And then the Greeks, who were very enlightened people, they had their own mythological mythological explanation of creation and humanity. They have this battle between the Olympians and the Titans. I know you're familiar with it. You know that Zeus represents the Olympians and he actually wins and he, he overcomes the Titans. And then human beings, we owe our existence to Prometheus. Prometheus makes human beings so that they can serve other gods. The Titans and the Olympians get frustrated with Prometheus and so he's judged. And so he lives the rest of his life with his liver being eaten by an eagle. And then the liver grows back. And then the eagle comes and eats it again. And then the liver grows back. And then the eagle comes and eats it again. Are y'all with me? This is the ancient view of reality, of educated people. Chaos, violence, death, fear. Even the Greek philosopher, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, those are the three men who have helped shape Western minds. Do you know what their view of humanity was? When you actually read their writings, it would be shocking to many of us who haven't really read what they had to say. You know, Plato, he just said, people are of unequal value and everybody knows it. He said, some people are born women and they can't help it. There's nothing they can do about it. Some people are born slaves, and there is nothing they can do about it. And women and slaves are not worthless, they're just worth less. And everybody knows it, and there's nothing they can do about it. The whole idea of the principle of democracy, which we do attribute to the Greeks, 
But you do understand what Greek democracy meant, right? You do know that it wasn't really democratic. The only people who could vote in a Greek democratic republic were the patriarchs of the larger influential families. Women, young adults, slaves had no voice in how they were governed, in anything that happened to them. Only the patriarch had a voice. That was viewed as equality. So contrast all of that with the story of the Bible. What's the Judeo-Christian view of creation and humanity? Well, what we believe is that there is one God, an eternal God, and he created everything that is, including human beings, and he spoke it into existence, and he put his image in every single human being, and we are monotheists who believe in human equality because we believe in the story of the Bible. Contrast that with the dominant views of the ancient world. It's not even, it's not even close. As a matter of fact, if you go read the epic of Atrahasis, or you read Enuma Elish, or the Gilgamesh epic, and then you read Genesis, there is no other ancient book in all of antiquity that even comes close to comparing with the majesty of Genesis. Scholars, literary scholars, agree to that today, even if they're not Jewish or Christian. It stands alone in antiquity. And so I want you to think with me today about modern human values, things that you just take for granted. That you, in any American would go, well, of course. Of course. What do I mean? Equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, progress. Pick an American and say, don't you believe that, uh, that people should be treated equally? Well, absolutely. I mean, even women? Slaves? Well, you shouldn't have slaves. Why? I mean, a slave is born a slave. They can't help it. Well, you should not have slaves because why? Well, we believe in equality, right? And we act like it's always been that way. Hasn't always been that way, y'all. The whole idea of compassion, consent. How was the ancient world ruled? By consent? No, by coercion. By the sword, not by consent. The enlightenment, like I said, education. Do you think that the ancient world cared about education? Well, then you've never studied the history of the ancient world. The ancient world only believed in education for a few privileged few, and it was a certain type of education. It had nothing to do with higher learning, pursuit of truth. It had to do with schools of thought being promoted by those who believed it. It's fascinating. Freedom, the freedom to live your life and control of your own life, the whole idea of progress. Do you know... All of those modern human values, you know what, where they come from? Christianity. These are all Christian ideas that have so permeated the culture that nobody even recognizes where they came from anymore. They just value them. Let me read to you a quote. Glenn Scrivener's written a book called The Air We Breathe. He says, the extraordinary impact of Christianity is seen in the fact that you don't notice it. You already hold particularly Christianist views, and the fact that you think these, of these values as natural, obvious, or universal, shows how profoundly the Christian revolution has shaped you. So when you and I begin to have a conversation with our culture about what it means to be a Christian, what we have to understand is 
our entire culture is already awash in Christian ideas and Christian values and Christian virtues. They just don't know it. It's like the story that Scrivener says, tells at the beginning of his book. He says, the old goldfish swam by the new young goldfish, and he says to the new young goldfish, so what do y'all think about the water? And the new young goldfish say, what water? They don't see water. What do you think about values? Well, I believe in all these values. Well, do you know that all these values actually come from Jesus Christ? They didn't exist in the ancient world. That can't possibly be true. Well, unfortunately, it is true, whether you understand it or not. I sound kind of argumentative, but I'm trying to make a point. <laughs> because we have something worth defending. So let me just ask you. If you just ask your neighbor, ask a person on the street, why does anything matter? I mean, if all this is as an evolved clump of cells, if that's really all this is, and if somehow it has evolved to a point to where it can navigate this reality, and that's all this is, well, then why does anything matter? What difference does it make if that's all this is? If that's your understanding, if, if all we want to do is make sure we don't commit crimes against humanity, if that's our highest standard, then why does anything matter? And who decides what's a crime against humanity? Where, where is the standard? What difference does it make if you choose to live your life any old way? Why does any of it matter? Are y'all still with me? What's the answer to that question? What, what, what do we say? What, what does anybody say? I mean, just... I would encourage you in conversations with people. Maybe you just want to ask them. Let me ask you a question. And I'm serious about this. Why does anything really matter? And just hear what people have to say. Why do people think anything matters? Because we think a whole lot of stuff matters. And the reason I know we do is because we're mad all the time. The only reason you get mad is because you think something matters. Right? So why does any of it matter? Who cares? What difference does it make in the grand scheme of things? This is the place to begin conversation about apologetics. So, what's our answer? Well, here's what I would say. Everything starts with God. <laughs> Everything. Where does our story begin? Our story begins in the beginning. That's where we start. And so the reason I believe anything matters, as a matter of fact, the reason I believe Everything matters is because of what I believe about God. And so everything starts with God. So you may say, well, no, wait a minute, preacher. What if the person you're talking to is an atheist? Well, then an atheist still has to acknowledge that there are some comprehensive unifying values that somehow guide our society. Where did they come from? If you were to ask an atheist, is anything wrong what if I want to come take your car right now? Why can't I just take your car? I like your car better than I do my car. Why can't I just take it? Who says that's wrong? You? Or are you like the authority? No. So there's something somewhere, somehow, that got decided that there are some unifying values that just govern our society. I get in my car in America, and y'all ain't gonna believe this, I drive on the right side of the road. I do. If there's a line in the road, I stay on my side of it. Isn't that funny? Wonder why I do that. I don't have to do that. I mean, if nothing really matters, 
If there's no standard, why can't I drive on the other side of the road and act like I'm in England, like Miss Mary? Why can't I just drive on your side of the road? Well, for some reason, I've just realized there's some unifying values that govern how we all interact. Well, where did all that come from? Well, I have an answer. God. Everything starts with God. That's where this begins. That's where our story begins. And so look at what the Bible says. Now, here's what's fascinating about the Bible. The Bible is complex. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. So this text says this. In the beginning, Elohim is the Hebrew word. Now, you know how you translate that in English? Gods. It's plural. Created, though, is singular. Now, those of you who are grammarians, you know you can't have a plural noun and a singular verb. Turns out, you can. The very first sentence in the Bible has that. So what is being communicated to me? What is being communicated to me is there's something, plura, there's something that is a plurality about God that I don't quite understand, but he's an absolute unity because the verb that's used in the sentence with him as the subject is a singular verb. So right off the bat, I'm reading the very first sentence and it's already complicated. It's complex. Good. That means you don't understand it all. Okay? None of us do. It's challenging and then, so just know our story begins here. Well, what about the God of the Bible? Can I just point out a couple things about the God of the Bible that's revealed right here in the very first page? Just the very first page. Here's what the scripture teaches me. Just on page one, the God of the Bible is preexistent. Now, one of the theological terms for that is immensitas. That means God simply is. He just exists. He has no beginning He's eternal. He's beyond time and space. He just is. In the beginning, God. God's already there in the beginning. That means God exists independently of anything else that exists. Now, we've studied the Bible, and so we know that, but we get that on page one. Think about it. Get to the very next book, and Moses is going to say, by the way, what is your name? And what's God's answer? I am. I'm transcendent. I just am. So the God of the Bible is preexistent. Second, he's personal. He's not a force. He's not an it. He is personal. He has personal characteristics. The verbs of the first chapter of Genesis, they demonstrate the energy. Derek Kidner says in his commentary on Genesis, demonstrate energy of mind and energy of will and energy of judgment. In other words, he's not an it. He is a person. He thinks, he reasons, he expresses, he communicates, he acts, he loves, he cares, he nurtures, he blesses. And so, the God of the Bible is a personal God. He's powerful. I want you to notice, he can create. Derek Kidner calls that verb create in Hebrew an impressive verb. Because almost, almost every time in your Hebrew Old Testament, it only carries God as its subject. You know why? Only God creates. You say, now wait a minute, preacher, I'm creative. You are, but you create something out of something. I've been playing with my little granddaughter, Adler. She likes to play Play-Doh. And so we're sitting at a table playing Play-Doh. Well, guess what? I'm really good at making stuff out of Play-Doh if you give me the Play-Doh. But if I were to sit down with Adler and she were to look at me and say, Poppy, would you just make some Play-Doh out of nothing? Uh, no. <laughs> I can't do that. God creates ex nihilo. 
God creates something out of nothing. God just speaks it, and all of a sudden, there it is. Now, come on, y'all. Y'all did hear me, right? We do know that, right? God just speaks, and all of a sudden, nothing becomes something because only God can do that. Yes, it's an impressive verb. <laughs> God creates. He's powerful. He's, his power is so great, our only hope is for him to patiently reveal himself to us because if he were to show us who he really is, we couldn't take it. Isn't that true? He told Moses. Moses said, show me your glory, and he said, you got to be kidding me. Seriously, if I showed you my glory, you would die on the spot. I tell you what, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide you over here in this rock. I'm going to pass by and just let you see my smoke. And even that's going to be too much. You'll, you'll glow in the dark. Isn't that what happened? Moses comes down off the mountain. They goes, hey, man, you're glowing. What happened? He goes, well, I'm not glowing. Yes, you are. We can't even look at you. What happened? Well, the smoke of God passed by. He didn't really see God. He just saw the evidence of God. Can you imagine if you really saw God? God's powerful, so we're grateful that he's patient in his self-revelation. He can create something out of nothing. Praise his name. Everything starts with this God. And then finally, I'd say he's purposeful. Everything exists by his will and his desire or it doesn't exist. He put it all into place. He is the one who said, let there be. And he stands behind it. His personal perfection guarantees its functionality and you don't ever worry about it. You just expect it to work, don't you? You just expect creation to work. Guess why? Because it does. You know why? Because a perfect God stands behind it and underneath it. And so for us as Christians, why does anything matter? Well, my short answer to that is God. If it weren't for God, none of it would really matter. There would be no standard. What would we judge anything by? But because there's a God, when everything matters. So this morning, can I just say, let's get ready. This year is going to be about this conversation. Apologetics and evangelism, they're going to go on two different tracks, side by side for our church. And here's my hope and my prayer for you, is that when we come to the end of this year, that you and I together will be better prepared to tell the story to a world that right now, y'all, is in need of a better story. May God use us to share it. May it be so. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this day and for this time and for this story. We thank you, Lord, that... Uh, that the story of the scripture is true, that the gospel is a powerful, beautiful, incredible story. Thank you. And we believe everything begins with you. So Lord, I ask you to guide our church this year as we engage on this journey of apologetics, of learning how to represent our faith and make an appeal to others. We trust that you'll guide us. We know the story is really good. So we ask you to help us to learn it well and be gifted to articulate it. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.